In considering our own personal pursuit of beauty, we should take our cues from the Universal Church. Welcome back to our series, Healthy Holy Beauty. This is part four, and I want to start off today by gushing about a bit <laughs> about the freedom that we have in our God-assigned role. Last week we talked about homemaking and we zoned in on two concepts in particular. One was the idea of cleanliness versus sterility, and the other was optimized functionality in the home. Uh, can I just point out to you <laughs> that there aren't really any other guidelines or parameters? I mean, you can try out as many different styles of decor, as many different furniture arrangements, as many different organizational systems, as many different cleaning schedules as you want and need in order to discover and create beauty in your home. You can browse Pinterest and follow someone else's plans to the letter. You can go thrift shopping and wing it. <laughs> You can include some amount for home improvements in the monthly spending plan, which you present to your husband for accountability. Or you can browse the Freebie Alerts app and jump on freebies when they pop up. There's so much freedom in making home a haven. It's a freedom you can't find in any other job out there. And I think that's what scares us. So much of the time we fall into sin precisely because freedom scares us. It's insane, but that's one of the tricks of the devil right? Chastity is scary because it might mean you'll always be alone because no one's going to keep you if you're going to make them wait until marriage, right? Freedom terrifies us. Personal responsibility is scary because it means that where I am in my life is where my choices have led me and I can't blame anyone for it. I really believe that many women reject homemaking because they're scared of the freedom that's within it. They're scared that they don't have the skills to do that freedom justice. They're scared to fail. I know I'm scared to fail. I'm terrified of failing. Hopefully most of the time I'm more terrified of facing Christ and having to tell him that I just gave up and didn't trust that he would give me all the grace needed to accomplish precisely what he tasked me to do. So with all of that gushing aside, let's enter into our eighth layer of discussion. Again, with regards to homemaking, we talked about cleanliness and optimized functionality, but what about decor? Is decor important? Is decorating your house important? Well, last week we discussed the need for the domestic church to take its cues from the universal church. One area of decor, which I think we ought to be paying more attention to as Catholic laity, is that our home decor ought to reflect the liturgical seasons. I won't go into that too much because I'm feeling pretty confident that my audience is made up of women who are already familiar with that idea, are already trying to do that. I will confess that it is not yet an area where I feel that I'm doing well. Um, I've managed the advent wreath and that's about it. I have yet to get purple cloth to cover the statues and crucifixes at the appropriate times of year. And I haven't really uh, figured out how to make the house feel brighter and more special and more feast focused during the Easter season. So these are areas that I'm, I'm trying hard to grow in. But then just in a general way, liturgical season aside, what is the purpose of the grandeur of the universal church or 
the portion of it anyway that hasn't completely abandoned the wisdom of the ages. The grandeur that you find in physical churches is intended to inspire devotion, inspire contemplation, to raise the mind to God, to the heights, to entice you to look up, to look to the heavens, to lighten and embolden your spirit, and at the same time to quiet your spirit, to calm your spirit, to inspire peace and joy within you. In considering how to decorate your home, can you look at your domestic church as having those same aims? That when we step away from the domestic church to attend Mass, and when we leave Holy Mass and return to the domestic church, we are not stepping outside of one thing and into another, but we are continuing our life in Christ. We are continuing our life in Christ. But again, so much freedom in this task, just as there are many styles of art that have graced our many churches, so there are many styles which you are free to utilize as you see fit in your domestic church. This eighth layer of discussion was a really quick layer, um, building on last week's discussion. Now, this ninth and final layer of discussion is the one which I know has the potential to be the touchiest. If you're just joining us on the Will to Wife podcast, I beg you to please at least start at the beginning of this series or even better start from our first, very first episode. This podcast is for the most part pedagogical. And again, I hope to surprise you with what I have to offer and suggest. I hope to challenge you to see all of this from a new angle or at least remind you of the angle that you've already heard of but find it maybe less natural right now to keep coming back to. This layer, this final layer, is about you. You and me and every other wife. I hope that the previous eight layers of discussion have made sense to you. They culminate here with this layer. Our personal beauty. So let's recap. Faith is caught, not taught. Faith can be caught from an encounter with an individual who through their example of living the faith makes the faith beautiful and, and thus attractive to others. As a married woman, the first person who ought to benefit from this potential for the flame of faith to be caught by encounter is your husband. Your home is your primary mission territory. Your husband should be the first to benefit from your joy-filled example of the faith lived. Joy is essential to making the faith attractive. Joy, which is, as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI says, a sign of grace. Joy is a sign of grace. Joy, which is the external indicator of grace, a truth which all of the saints agree on. Joy makes you a healthier person. Not just spiritually, not just emotionally, not just mentally, but physically. Joy makes you a healthier person. We have a responsibility to be healthy. And our responsibility to be healthy is determined by the tasks which God has assigned to us specific to our vocation. We have a responsibility to not only seek to be physically healthy, but also mentally, emotionally, and spiritually healthy. When our physical health suffers through no fault of our own, we do not automatically become less attractive. But the operative part of that statement is through no fault of our own. When we neglect our physical health or worse, deliberately sabotage it, 
We are failing not only in our responsibility to our own self as a temple of God, but we are failing in our responsibilities to the people God has entrusted to us, namely to our husband and to any children. But also that mental and emotional health are necessary in order to properly develop and practice virtue. Virtue is beautiful. Women have been given an especial power to draw their husbands and children to God through holy Christ-centered beauty. One expression of that holy Christ-centered beauty is found in the home, which is the wife's domain. The home has physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of health, and the wife's health in each of those areas largely largely determines her ability to make her home healthy in the corresponding respective area. A single word for a home which is healthy in all four aspects is a haven. This idea of haven comes directly from the universal church in that the domestic church is called to mirror the universal church. Well, if the domestic church is called to mirror the universal church, then you as a wife are called to mirror the bride of Christ as a whole in how she strives to image her bridegroom. And see, we come full circle. We're back at faith is caught, not taught. This is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. End quote. From 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, quote, Wives, be submissive to your husbands so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. End quote. If you've never read Proverbs 31, which is subtitled Praise of a Good Wife, I invite you to do so. I'm going to read it now. Um, This is from the Revised Standard Version, 2nd Catholic Edition, from verse 10 onwards. Quote, Who can find a good wife? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and tasks for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She clothes her loins with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. 
She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the market. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. End quote. If you've been following this podcast, everything we've talked about is here, being a soft place for one's husband to land, giving him the security of your unconditional respect, attendance to your God-given responsibilities with regards to your home and your family. It's all here. In the previous quote from First Peter is captured the emphasis we have always put on inspiring your husband through your own excellent example of the faith versus attempting to cajole or coerce him into better behavior. And in the first quote, a reminder that Christ died precisely so that you might become holy. So let's pull at some of these threads, shall we? Inner beauty we've pretty much covered over the course of the past year almost your character, the importance of your character. So we're not going to rehash all of that again today. We are going to tackle now, and again, this might be touchy for you. If it's that difficult, please feel free to step away. We're going to tackle physical beauty. So let's again return to the Universal Church and our call to mirror her and take our cues from her. And in so doing, we do turn back to the theoretical for a period. In the second episode of Mass of the Ages, if you go to timestamp 2719, again, this is the second episode of Mass of the Ages, timestamp 2719, you will find an image of a tree which shows the growth of the liturgy. And the commentary, if you play the video, is on the organic development of the liturgy and how it grew into something more beautiful over time. The key words which you will hear from one of the commentators are embellishment, adornment, enrichment, expansion. So just as the church grew and found that art was an appropriate medium for strengthening faith so we too are invited to go beyond inner beauty and consider that there is something to be said for a beautiful appearance having the power to draw others closer to god again embellishment adornment enrichment expansion okay if you've had the privilege of traveling in Europe, you know that there are churches that you could spend several days in and not be able to look and really digest all of the art that is there. My point is that the church has long utilized visual beauty, visible beauty, as a means of praise and prayer, of worship and of evangelization. So for us to speak of a woman's physical appearance, as having the potential to be harnessed for these same purposes. Again, with all of the analogy that we've drawn between the universal church and the domestic church, and therefore between the wife in her own home and the bride of Christ as a whole. This should not be frustrating. 
It should not be offensive. It should not even be particularly surprising. It ought to feel like a quite natural progression of thought, in fact. So as the church came to identify certain forms of art as appropriate, as effective for enhancing worship, for strengthening faith, what we have to understand is that this also comes with the church's growth in understanding human nature, in her growth in understanding of science. When the church deems certain types of art to be more appropriate than others. Let me just give the example of polyphony and Gregorian chant, okay? It's not that all other music is straight up downright ugly, <laughs> but there is a type of music which raises up the soul and points the soul towards God. Andrew Pudua um, has a presentation entitled The Profound Effects of Music on Life. And I haven't listened to the presentation in probably close to 15 years. But these fundamentals from his presentation stayed with me. That when listening to a piece of music, the heart is affected by the music's beat and thereby affects the entire body. When a beat is a steady beat similar to the heartbeat, the music which follows that heartbeat-like beat elicits calm. When the beat is contrary to the heartbeat, the body is thrown into chaos because the heart tries to follow the chaotic beat and to do so, to follow the irregular beat, would throw the rest of the body out of balance. So the result is stress on the body. Again, it's probably been 15 years, and I'm probably botching my paraphrasing of it. But I guarantee that at the time that Gregorian chant was decreed sacred music, this very um, deep and detailed understanding from a scientific standpoint was not yet possible. Yet, as we grew in understanding of both human nature and science, the importance of calm and the dangers of perpetually high cortisol levels, science confirmed why this certain type of music served to enhance prayer, to enhance worship, to help the body center itself on Christ in a setting where worship is the intention, by engaging the body and promoting its health in that situation. What I'm trying to get at by bringing this up is that the same holds true for the church's standards of modesty in dress. When the church speaks into the standards of modesty for women, it is because the collective memory of the church with regards to her study of human nature has put her in an excellent position to inform us of standards parameters, and guidelines for an excellence in dress which brings souls closer to God rather than turning souls away from Him. Furthermore, advances in science, advances in our understanding of how men and women are hardwired, confirms the church's standards. This uh, following quote is from Shanti Felton's For Women Only, which we spotlighted at the end of the month a few uh, months back. 
quote, I have found that understanding the basics of brain science has been extremely helpful. A man's brain structure and chemical mix wire him to be extremely visually oriented. That wiring makes him more likely to perceive attractive images as sexual and triggers an initial reaction that is both instinctive and automatic. From there, he can choose, if he opts to apply his willpower, how he will think and behave. The most important wiring to understand is a small center of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. It resides in the back of the brain, the area that controls stuff you don't consciously think about like digestion and breathing. The nucleus accumbens is the part of the brain that automatically lights up when, for example, you are extremely hungry and you walk into a room to see a buffet of yummy looking food. First, your brain draws you toward that food in a gut level automatic way. But then the cortical thinking centers in your brain kick in. Your ability to exercise your willpower kicks in. You might decide to start eating or thinking perhaps about your pocketbook, your schedule, or your waistline. You might force your thoughts and your eyes away. Clinical studies show the same process happening in a man's brain when he sees an attractive woman dressed to call attention to a good figure, such as showing cleavage or wearing a tight skirt. The nucleus accumbens in his brain lights up, and he will most likely experience a primal physical temptation to visually consume that image. But then his thoughts and his will kick in, and he can decide whether to continue to entertain that image or to wrench his thoughts away. Most women don't understand this sequence because on visual sexual matters, our brains respond quite differently. In most cases, when we see an attractive man, our nucleus accumbens stays dark and instead our cortical centers light up. So we think to ourselves, wow, he's an attractive man. Since ours is a thinking-oriented response from the beginning, most of us simply have no idea what a man's initial reflexive response feels like or even that it exists. End quote. If you need to, please rewind this episode and listen to that again because this is so essential for us to understand. Man has an involuntary response to an attractive image. That means that his initial response, precisely because it is indeed involuntary, is not a sin. Now, now that I understand this, I cringe when I see mothers stating that if they haven't taught their sons how to not respond to tempting images, then they failed as mothers. That is, that is a comment that I see in groups discussing modesty. It doesn't work like that. 
he has no control initially. And therefore, his initial involuntary response is not a sin. It is not something which needs to be corrected. It is not something which can be tamed or trained out of him. It is a normal and involuntary response. However, when elicited in certain situations versus others, it becomes an occasion of sin. Not automatically a sin, but an occasion of sin. So, when the church speaks into the topic of standards for public modesty, and we will really dive into this next week, when the church speaks into the topic of standards for public modesty in dress for women, she is not shaming women. She is trying to protect the integrity of that fundamental unit of society, which is the nuclear family. Public modesty in dress for a woman is a virtuous act of charity given that men's involuntary response to an attractive image is immediate and automatic, meaning that when faced with an attractive image, he does not immediately have a choice as to whether or not to engage. His body responds automatically, his body engages automatically. Only after the initial engagement does his choice present itself. And that choice is to continue to engage or not. But the engagement has already begun. So when the church speaks of public modesty for women as a virtuous act of charity... She does not exaggerate when she says that dressing immodestly directly causes occasions of sin for men. We do not sugarcoat things here at the Wolf to Wife podcast. You have a personal responsibility to help every man whom you encounter to avoid occasions of sin by dressing appropriately. He does not have an initial choice in the matter. He literally cannot encounter a woman dressed provocatively and choose to not engage at all. His body will engage. That is how God created him. And because it is how God created him, we accept that this is good. That God intended for this to be a gift. That God intended for this to be a part of man's path towards God. We will stop here for this week, but I really hope that you've been able to hear this. This is so important to understand or next week will be just horrendous. (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry, but it will. If you do not hear this, if you cannot accept this, next week will just be terrible. So please take this to prayer if you are struggling with this. Ask God to help you trust his design. Trust that he gives all the grace necessary to trust his design. And come back to join us next week with an open mind and an open heart. God bless, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us. 
You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Life podcast. Mm-hmm.